You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was Add 10 Gallons? Add 10 Gallons. My first thought was, we got to put Axe Chill in there. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> Trucks on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We appreciate you being with us once again for another episode and just like always i'm joined by paul and joey paul what's up great day to be alive great day to talk concrete heard that joey same same we're good let's <laughs> let's get it yeah it's kind of hard to top that we're like oh it's a great day to be alive actually paul uh <laughs> actually <laughs> actually it's it, it, it could be no it definitely is and uh we're gonna get to it and, and all things related to it, today our guest is Eric Dixhorn from BrickEye Digital IoT. Um, so we're going to talk technology and concrete, and we're going to talk concrete monitoring and concrete sensors. And let me stop you there. I did ask him the important question of what makes your stuff different than everyone else's stuff, and his answer was a phenomenal one. So you guys are going to have to stick around and listen to that. Um, I got, nice I got, tease. Very, I, well done. Very well done. I got it. I got into Eric a little bit, man. I mean, he he spoke he spoke super well, and he was giving me super logical, analytical question or answers to all my questions. And I'm like, listen, we like to theorize a little bit here. I just <laughs> I just want you to guess about something. <laughs> Everything so far has been based with statistics, and that's that's not all we do here. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Josh had his Josh's conspiracy corner sign ready. He was ready to throw that up there on the wall. Yeah, I should. I should. I need to start doing that, like a Woody Page style whiteboard in the background, and be like, "This is what we're talking about today." Yeah, you really should. Uh, there are some great conspiracies out there, and we've been reading up on a couple, and we're not prepared entirely to go into those yet. So we're gonna hold back. But there's a really good one brewing about the lumber industry and what's going on over there as they try to attack the concrete industry over carbon emissions. And so yeah. we're going to bring that to you in a future episode with a little bit more in-depth research and some sources, maybe have some special guests. Yeah, it's it's on our radar, but this isn't something we can just 
fly off the cuff with. We're going to come correct on this one. Yeah, we could fly off the cuff. Yeah. But be a little bit tad irresponsible. So we're going to head in a different direction. And today uh, I want to talk about a new technology that's out in the marketplace. It's from a company called Carbon Built. And they've got what they're calling Reversa. And this is a concrete curing system. So it actually works uh, well for things like precast concrete and concrete blocks. They're trying to put embodied carbon back into the concrete pieces. And the very first person who has agreed to commercialize this technology is also the person who's the very first adopter of liquid actigel, the product we sell. Matt Blair down at Blair Block in Childersburg, Alabama. Truly an early adopter. Truly. Matt Blair is. <laughs> truly the adopter. So I was actually hanging out with Matt last week, and I remembered that I had seen this article, and so I brought it up to him. I was like, man, you sure ain't scared. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll take on anything, won't you? And, uh, you know, he just died laughing. He kind of lit up a little bit, and he was like, yeah, man, got these PhD dudes down in Southern California. He goes, and they think they come up with this special thing. He goes, I saw it. He goes, man, I think it's real. He goes, I think it really does work. And uh, he said, you know, don't worry. We're still going to use all the actor Joe. <laughs> I was like, man, I, I really wasn't worried. He's, uh, he said that he really did take out like 80% of the cement in his con- concrete blocks. And the strengths are even higher than they were before. Densities are fine. Everything's fine. Man. And Whoa. I mean, uh, yeah, 80% of the cement came out. And he said he thinks it probably could be 100% if you had the right other materials. But, I mean, he's constantly using waste and garbage, anything he can find to throw in a block. So he said if you had, like, a more conventional mix, I mean, it's possible they could be telling the truth. They could be like 100%, but he took out 80% of his cement using Carbon Built's uh, new system here. So you'll have to expand on uh, what uh, what that is. So is it a liquid? So what are we looking at here? You, if you're replacing 80% of your cement, like what are, you, what are you adding to that block to make up that volume? Are you adding sand, or what's this uh, carbon stuff here? Yeah, so they're saying they're going to use... CO2 emissions that are being derived from locally sourced forestry waste. And it's then being, well, I'm assuming liquefied, and they put in this special curing chamber and they're injecting it into like the steam cure for those blocks. And all of that carbon is going into the block and mineralizing. And so you're creating that calcium hydroxide reaction inside of concrete block and so you're getting that cement hydration reaction you're getting the things you need in there to give you the strength what surprises me though is that there's still enough paste to make paste aggregate bond so that these bricks can be made but at the end of the day i mean water might be enough to do some of that because people make mud bricks all the time yeah so it could be that our thought of you had to have enough cement paste could be wrong in how we're thinking about making these blocks. But the cement was always needed for the strength of the block. So 
So these guys have come along and said, well, now you don't need the cement for the strength. You just need to be able to make the block, and we'll get you the strength. So the Actigels help holding that block up high, and this new stuff from Carbon Built is giving it the strength. Hmm. Is this added like, um, this is added in the batching sequence? No, no. Curing. It's in the curing. Curing sequence. It's in the kiln. It, they're building a new special kiln. So that's why he's not using it yet. He's signed the paperwork. He said he's actually, it took a long time to negotiate the deal. Uh, but now that they've put pen to paper, it's going to take six months minimum to get the new kiln built, get everything put in, get the CO2 sourced. They're not going to be starting until 2023 actually making these blocks. Yeah. Well, Matt has some some nice stuff down there as far as equipment goes and how they keep their plant. I mean, they got a pretty good operation, but there's plenty of old boys out there making block. They could use a new kiln anyway. So (laughs) (laughs) one that like seals properly (laughs) where the sprayers work right. Seals it all. Yeah. Thermostat. What? (laughs) Well, it's hotter in that room than it is in this other room. So I reckon it's all right. It's 100 degrees in Alabama now. What do I need to I'm I'm quoting directly here. We're in Florida. We don't need a curing room. (laughs) (laughs) Heard that one. I'm like, oh. Well, I guess it is humid. <laughs> That's pretty wild. I I would be curious to see if they took 100% of the cement out and just see if Actigel stood that block up. I mean, because Actigel works. It doesn't have to have cement in anything. Actigel doesn't react with cement. I'd be interested in seeing all that. Yeah, Matt told me that on the when we were hanging out or whatever, and he said, you know, you should get in contact with these guys. He goes, I told them about y'all that y'all could probably help them out getting that cement taken out even further. So, yeah, I think your head's right on track with what Matt sees, but we'd have to just get in touch with these guys to see what the world they actually have going on. But, dude, if Matt Blair thinks it's worth trying, then he put it through its paces. And Well, the thing I wanted to talk about has absolutely no segue. <laughs> <laughs> because what I want to talk about is uh, – well, it, it's political, but political for a, a good reason. Like, I'm actually going to give a politician credit here for doing something. Um, but what he's doing is essentially giving people without four-year college degrees opportunities at government jobs that um, previously required one. Um, so we're going from a really interesting, innovative system made by some PhDs in Southern California to me saying, see, look, you don't need all those fancy degrees. <laughs> <laughs> but this is interesting that we've advocated on here that there's a lot of jobs out there that can be done without a college degree. So why saddle somebody with $100,000 worth of student loan debt for a degree they really don't need once you get out there and you can just get trained on these jobs. And now we have someone who's in a real position who heard our podcast apparently and he's done exactly what we've asked. Yeah, yeah. So apparently uh, Governor Hogan of Maryland listens to our podcast all the time. And uh, shout out Governor Hogan, who probably isn't listening to this, but uh, <laughs> it'd be rad if he was. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, we, we are of the, the micro mentality here of you should be rewarded for hard work, not uh, how long or how much you've studied over a four-year period of time. So recently, Governor Hogan of Maryland announced the elimination of four-year degree requirements for 
thousands of state jobs. He, he was joined by the secretary of the Maryland Department of Labor and also the CEO and co-founder of Opportunity at Work, which is a nonprofit that they were working with for this. And uh, that was where a lot of the statistics and everything came from, from the Opportunity at Work nonprofit. Um, and of, of course, anything political has to have a catchy tagline and you, you have to, you know how they called people dreamers and things of that nature. So um, they identify these people, uh, albeit these people meaning um, qualified individuals without a four-year degree. They identify them as stars, right? <laughs> so stars, stars stands for... STARS stands for people who are skilled through alternative routes, which, I mean, all right. It sounds, <laughs> yeah, it sounds so degrading, like condescending. Oh. Your STARS. Bless your heart. Yes. I've got skilled through an alternative route. I am for sure going to use that in an insult. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but anyway, I mean, in, in the announcement, uh, Governor Hogan said that, that currently the state of Maryland employs more than 38,000 people. And uh, through this program, they've identified that more than half of those jobs can substitute relative experience, training, um, community college education, um, trade school education, things of that nature. Um, so at least half of those 38,000 jobs don't, shouldn't require your, your standard typical four-year diploma. Um, in order to qualify to be a star... Uh, Gotta find a way to say that without sounding condescending. Uh, yeah, you're but, laughing. Oh, yeah, as we're saying, it, it, in order to qualify to be a star, you have to be 25 or older and currently active in the labor force. So, with that being said, there's probably, I mean, there's probably a lot of people out there who could qualify or will also soon qualify that they're not even uh, they're not even registering right now, but. Uh, you need at least a high school diploma or equivalent and develop skills through alternative routes. Um, On-the-job training is really what they're looking for, but even like military service, boot camps, apprenticeships, it all qualifies. So thousands of jobs, I think you said earlier, is like 30,000 jobs or something? 38,000, and that's just for the state of Maryland alone. And they said over half of those um, don't need your, your standard so let's say twenty. Let's say twenty thousand. But yeah. even then, that's great. So the jobs did require a bachelor's degree minimum. Right. And now they're saying, you know what? No, it really doesn't. Somebody just needs to tell you what to do, and you can go do it. And I think there's a lot of jobs out there in this workforce that are exactly like that. Yep. And people are using the bachelor's degree minimum as a way to weed out people who have drive and intention, but. There's people out there that got plenty of want to, mm -hmm. but maybe didn't think college was for them, and this is a way to really go after that. It's yeah, awesome. no, well said. And this opportunity at work uh, organization that's you know really been providing the stats here, um, they estimate that there are more than 70 million people in the United States today that qualify as their as their stars uh, curriculum. Well, this this is an interesting moment in time. Because, and I think we need to give credit where credit's due. You wanted to say giving credit to a politician. Yeah. And it, it's not just that Governor Hogan took the step and signed this in. But the organization, this organization that he's working with, this is not 
a Republican right wing organization. Right. So government Governor Hogan, who is a Republican governor, has reached across the aisle with an organization he probably doesn't align with one hundred percent, but they have one tenet of what they do, the star program, and he says, you know what? That would be great for my constituency, for the Marylanders in the state. You actually make a good point, even though I probably don't agree with 90% of what you say. You're right on this, and let's do it. And that, I mean, that's incredible. That's great. Credit to Governor Hogan for recognizing that and putting this in. Yeah, yeah. No, so I wanted to bring that up. I mean, we, we rag on politicians all the time. And uh, me being a resident of the state of Maryland, I was made aware of this because of certain social media accounts and stuff that I follow. But hopefully it's adopted by a lot of states because you got to believe, I mean, there's a lot of states out there that are just inundated with, as as you put, people with ambition and drive, but they don't have that magical piece of paper. Um, but that certainly doesn't mean that they can't do the job. I was trying to explain to someone last week in Alabama that the city of Baltimore taxes you when it rains. More it rains, more you get taxed. He just thought that was the most insane thing he ever heard. I was like, oh, yeah, no, it's crazy. And, you know, so the next thing, I'm calling on Governor Hogan (laughs) right now to override the Baltimore City rain tax. It's unconstitutional. He butts heads with with Baltimore City all the time, just constantly. And every once in a while he'll get a win, but it's like pulling teeth, man, because that's, that's oil and water. Given his opposition, he's done a pretty good job. Yeah, 10-4. All right, Joey, how are you going to follow that up, man? That was pretty good. Okay, so I'm going to follow that up with probably the most exciting news to come out of SEC media days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what he's going to say. At our, I have no idea what he's going to say, but at our heart, this is really a college football podcast. Yes, college football starts next month. And uh, just to go to show everybody else in the country that it just means more in the Southeast, uh, the SEC announced this past week at SEC Media Days that Bush's Beans is now the official beans of the SEC. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You did send me that. That's so funny. But, I mean, all jokes aside, Bush's baked beans are legit. (laughs) Oh, hey, uh, tell me another bean company. You can't. <laughs> oh, Goya Beans ain't played nobody, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Goya Beans is a Pac-12 beans. Come on. <laughs> and just just show you how, how just to, to let everybody know how insane we are down here in the SEC country. As soon as that was announced, like I immediately just wanted to fight every other bean company in the country because I know they wouldn't they wouldn't worth nothing. I'm very curious to know what it costs to become the official bean of the uh, SEC. Okay, let's take a bet right now. How much do you think it costs to be the official bean over under? I'm going to set the over under annually annually on a let's say 5-year deal annually 5 million a year to be the official bean. Got the over or the under on that, Josh? How many teams are in the SEC? 14. Well, going to be 16. Over. Yeah. Over? Yeah. Over on $5 million a year yeah. to be the bean. I bet. All right, Joey, what do you think? Yeah, I think I would go with the over, too. And I honestly, honestly don't know if – does that take effect, like, immediately? I didn't get those details. I would assume but, so. Hold on a second. 
TV rights were like $22 million a year is what the teams were getting. So how much mm-hmm. was the league getting? Probably double that. Teams were getting that each or? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah, each team. Because it would be 250000 per team to have a bean. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. Did the teams even get a cut with that? Man, there are so many questions here. I know. This is All a lot to unpack here. Bean. Yeah, a lot to unpack. We were not prepared. That's it. I'm going to SEC Media Days next year. That way I can have all my questions answered and ready for the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. (laughs) How's that? Oh, yeah, I'd like to to register for a media credential for this. (laughs) They'd probably give me one. Yeah, we're official, boys. I got a a media credential for World of Concrete, so what's the difference? Well, I don't know. I don't know how much Bush is paid, but it's likely to pay off for him because if I know anything about SEC football fans, they are loyal to a fault. So there's plenty of people down there that choose Coke over Pepsi because that little Coke bottle sitting there next to Nick Saban on every single interview. And uh, so now, I mean, not that they, not that they needed any help because they're the only bean company that I know of. But now every SEC football fan is going to have Bush's beans on the, at the tailgate. So. Good for them. Good for them. But when it comes to concrete technology, your new favorite company is is Brick Eye Industrial. And Eric Dixhart is going to come on here and tell you why. So now all the lawyer listeners of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast are going to know what probes are going to be sticking into concrete. Uh, and that's going to be apparent to you after this episode. So without further ado, Eric Dixhorn with Brick Eye Digital. All right, with us today, we have Eric Van Dixhorn from Brick Eye Industrial Technologies. I uh, really appreciate you being on the show here. Why don't you give the listeners a little bit of background information about yourself, uh, where you came from, how you got in the industry, and, and what led you to, to this position right here? Yeah, well, thanks thanks for having me. Um, it's great to be on. Um, so my background is I attended the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and graduated with a degree in civil engineering um, and then worked as a project manager for a heavy civil contractor in Wisconsin for about eight years. So I worked on a lot of DOT projects, mainly bridge and road construction in the Milwaukee area. Um, Then about four years ago, I uh, received a call from a family friend that had a small startup that was growing very quickly. So the company was called Nitrocrete and um, had developed this very unique technology that used liquid nitrogen for cooling ready mix concrete. So we were the only ones doing it um, in this manner and there was a, a ton of potential. So uh, we jumped on that opportunity and our family moved out to Colorado. Um, company grew like crazy, I think we had six employees when when I had started and then uh, we're up to about 50 employees about a year later so a lot of fun learned a lot about the ready mix industry uh, the concrete cooling industry um, in in that time Um, so unfortunately with with a lot of small startups that are growing quickly the company ran into some financial issues and I kind of saw where things were headed so I decided to move on um, and now I've been here with Brick Guy for just about six, seven months. Oh, okay, so just recently transitioning uh, into your, your role here with Brick Guy, relatively speaking. Yeah, so I was with Nitrocrete from approximately early 2019 
um, to it was about November of 2021. So yeah, I've been with BrickEye now for seven months. Great. So uh, tell us a little bit about BrickEye, you know, know, what the company does, what you guys specialize in, and and what products that you bring to the market and, and promote for the concrete industry. Yeah, of course. And just to clarify, some people may know BrickEye as AOMS. So the, the company name changed officially to BrickEye about three months ago. So that's that's led to a little confusion, but so I wanted to clarify that. Um, but yeah, BrickEye is a, is a technology company focused on increasing efficiency and safety on construction job sites through the use of digital sensors and cloud-based software. Uh, so the company's based out of Toronto, um, has around 45 employees. Um, I'm working remotely from Fort Collins, Colorado. It's probably worth mentioning that there's there's kind of three divisions to to BrickEye. So just to give you a little background, uh, the, the company was founded about 10 years ago. The, uh, the three founding members met while pursuing their PhDs at the University of Ottawa, and they developed and patented this technology that uses a fiber optic cable to measure different parameters like temperature, strain, vibration, uh, just by measuring how the light reflects as it passes through that cable. So ma- mainly used in industrial applications, but that was kind of the foundation of of the company, which at that time was AOMS or Advanced Opto Mechanical Systems. <laughs> so we kind of joke about uh, what happens when three academics name a company. Um, but then the, the company kind of dove into the concrete sensor market about four years ago, and that product line is known as Lumicon. And so Lumicon has been commercially available for around three to four years, but what I'd say what is the current model of the Lumicon sensor, um, which has driven a lot of the growth and success with the company, has been around for just about a year, a little over a year, so relatively new. Um, And then um, also about a year ago, AOMS at the time acquired a, a company called BrickEye, which focused on the use of sensors and cloud based software. Uh, mainly for vertical construction sites to help mitigate risk. So the the sensors include water leak detection, vibration monitoring, air quality, noise, and and a few others. So those are kind of the three legs that that make up the company, the the fiber optic side, the concrete sensors, and then the construction risk platform. Um, So... Yeah, that gives a little bit of, of background on the on the three different divisions. Okay, so these days especially, it seems like you know there, there's new tech companies popping up all over the place, and uh, a lot of them have to do with concrete monitoring systems and, and job site monitoring um, services and, and systems. So uh, is the fiber optic element of of what you guys do there is that something that sets your products apart or differentiates you uh, in that market and kind of provides you with a little bit of an edge no that's a great question so the the fiber optic sensors aren't necessarily used for the construction risk platform so the fiber optic part of it is mainly used in industrial applications 
Um, so a couple examples include um, measuring temperature distribution underground in, in cases where a site needs thermal remediation, or it's also been used in concrete pavements to measure strain and displacement um, at the joints. Um, it can also be used for measuring uh, corrosion on steel piping. So the, the sensor is applied to the steel pipe and the irregularities in the surface of that pipe can cause um, the sensor to, to track some of the, the movement and in that way can, can indicate if there's corrosion or not on the pipe. So those are kind of a little bit separate um, applications for the fiber optic. The, the BrickEye construction risk platform, as, you know, as far as what sets this apart, I, I don't know that there's anything that is that unique about the hardware in, in a sense. What sets us apart, I think, is the, the way that we communicate and, and bring connectivity from the sensors to, to the users. So, you know, anyone can, can purchase a, a carbon monoxide detector or a um, air quality monitor, but the, the fact that we're able to channel those alerts to the cloud and notify the user, I think that is what kind of sets, sets us apart. I'm glad you brought up that element of connectivity and, and integration. Uh, if you talk about this emerging technology from the lens of a ReadyMix provider, I mean, they have moisture probes at their plants, and then they have probes in their, in their trucks that can you know, give them information on, on really anything pertaining to that mix design. And there's, there's a ton of other different plugins that, that they can use to gain very useful data. But the problem is nowadays, uh, at least so far, is that it doesn't really talk to each other. Like those systems don't talk to each other in an in a integrated way to where you can just use one device or, or one platform and kind of see everything, almost like how your cell phone has apps now. Uh, it's really hard to find something. I don't even know if it exists currently that, uh, you know, one, one piece of hardware that pulls all those different elements and all those different features and all the software that goes with those features just pulls everything into one contained unit that's, that's easy and efficient to, to operate, especially for, say, a ready-mix driver or a, or a dispatch guy. Um, so what's being done on that front from you or, and, and really the entire tech industry? Is there something being done to kind of streamline all of the great benefits that are being presented? Absolutely. That, that's a great question, and I think it is a bit of a, of a pain point for, for a lot of the users. Um, so, yeah, we have actively... Uh, provided integrations with other cloud-based softwares so that the user doesn't need to open up all these different apps. They can have all the information at their fingertips in one app. Um, and, and just to kind of expand on that a little bit, I think one of the things that, that we're working as a company is um, where possible, I'll call it removing the human element from from the process. So, you know, as an example, we, we have a water leak detection sensor that can notify 
um, the superintendent if there's a water leak at the site. And he can be alerted of that at any time, anywhere he's located. Um, but the, the issue becomes, what if that superintendent is, is two hours away and can't do anything about it? So there could be a lot of water damage that can occur in that time. So the next step that we implemented was designing an automated shutoff valve that can then uh, talk to the water sensor and turn off the water supply in the event that this water leak happens. Um, so that's just kind of an example. It's, it's, it's our ongoing goal is to provide more automation and intelligence to these processes to essentially keep the human element out of, out of the equation. So with these products that you, you promote, um, I, I see a big element of your promotional um, verbiage or, or literature is safety, and you really hone in on the safety aspect and being able to save money and time and litigation long-term by being proactive about certain issues that are almost inevitable to pop up uh, on, on a job site within the industry. So, you know, with those long-term benefits, sometimes it's hard to justify the immediate cost or, you know, the immediate cost demands. Mm -hmm. um, so with that, uh, you know, what, what's the adoption rate like? You know, these superintendents, these companies, you know, are, are they looking for a service right offhand? Um, do they see the end benefits? Or is, is that something that you kind of have to promote and, and really help them see the benefits long-term? I, I think it's just awareness uh, to the contractor that this, this technology is out there and helping them understand why it may be needed. And, and I think that will catch up. I mean, just, just as an example, you know, I, I think as, as construction projects keep getting more complex, so do the supply chains, logistics, schedules, everything a part of that. And, and the consequences of the insurance claims and the rework have also increased drastically. Uh, so one of the, the numbers that, that we use is that, uh, just an example for a, an average deductible for a water leak claim was around $25,000 five years ago. And now it's $250,000. So I think contractors and, and developers, honestly, who maybe had been a little skeptical of, of adding technology are now a little bit more prone to find options um, to kind of offset some of these, these risks. Um, so that on top of, I mean, I think everyone is experiencing uh, labor shortage. It's, it's, it's hard to find people. It's even harder to find good people. Um, so that has, has really propelled companies to find ways to get the work done by removing the human from, from that equation. So I think so you've seen a big increase in use of drones, digital mapping, um, collaborative cloud-based software, autonomous equipment, and, and sensors. So it's, it's a field that I, I see will keep, keep continuing to grow. All right, Eric, to this point, you've done a phenomenal job with giving me very well thought out strategic answers. <laughs> But uh, that's not what we're always about here on the Ad 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. You know, sometimes, you know, we, we like to take it off the rails a little bit. All right. Uh, yeah. And uh, no, not every answer needs to be 
justifiable. We don't ask you to state your sources or anything like that. I'm, but I'm going to I'm going to ask you to speculate here. We talk a lot about the labor shortage, and we've I think we've talked about the labor shortage in every single episode we've had this year. I, it's a real concern, um, and we've also talked about emerging technologies um, taking away the human element, as as you alluded to. So when we think of the labor shortage, we think about there not being enough blue collar guys that wield a shovel like Thor's hammer and, um, you know, a a job site full of guys with, with dirty fluorescent orange t-shirts and jeans and boots. And, you know, we don't have enough of those guys. That's, that's obvious for a lot of blue collar jobs with emerging technologies. You might be, you might be looking at a different demographic. Are we, are, are we potentially seeing the backfill of the labor in the construction industry? Are we going to be backfilling that void with a different demographic of people? Maybe, you know, your younger 20s to 30s with technological experience and background. You know, I, I think it's going to be an ongoing challenge finding people to fill these roles. I noticed the, the difference, you know, give or take in the eight years that I worked with with this general contractor, it just became increasingly difficult to find labor. And so I think just as, as the rules of economics are going to play out, it's going to be much of a supply and demand. I think the, the cost of labor is going to continue to, to increase. And I've had the opportunity to travel some, and, and it's been it's been interesting to see how the economics play out. So I visited a, a ready-mix plant down in, in Mexico. So labor down there is is cheaper. And on a on an average ready mix plant, you know, they had probably about fifteen employees. And that included a number of laborers just using shovels and wheelbarrows to, you know, pick up aggregate that spilled over the side, clean up the site, where in the US you would have a couple guys and a skid steer providing the same type of work. And now even more extreme, I also spent some time down in Australia uh, with, I, with a previous company I worked for, and labor down there is, is even more expensive than the U.S., so it was kind of even, even um, more obvious that they, they put a large emphasis on using equipment and using robotics to perform a lot of the work that maybe people would. So I think the trend is going to continue to go that way. And you, you talked about is the new generation going to be flying drones and and using remote controls to to drive equipment instead of you know physically using a shovel or jumping in a piece of machinery. And I think yeah, it, it's going to be headed that route. That's yeah. That's that's kind of what I'm seeing as well. I, you know, back to the speculatory things that we like to do here. My biggest question is how do we get people with that skill set interested in the trades and interested on being an, on a job site, you know? And, um, I tell you what, we see a lot, we've interviewed a few people that are f- with and involved in the 3d concrete printing industry. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's, and essentially, you know, essentially you have MIT nerds who <laughs> can make a robot <laughs> pour concrete, but they don't know anything about being on a concrete job site. And then you have foremen that, they don't even speak the same language. So, right. 
You know, the guys who want the house being built speak a totally different language than the MIT guys. And I apologize for calling them nerds. It's an endearing term. It's my show. I can do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> They've been called worse, I'm sure, but they probably make five times more than I do. So they, they shouldn't care. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, it's, it's just a completely different language, I, I guess you could say. Um, so that that communication barrier, is that something that you guys see with with your products on a job site as well? Um, yes, definitely. And I think that that's, you know, that's one of the reasons that, that I joined BrickEye. The, you know, the company has a ton of smart people in it, very knowledgeable about sensors, networks, electronics, but they didn't have a lot of experience in construction or the concrete industry. So I think I've had the opportunity to kind of see both sides of it working as a project manager deal with everyone from laborers, carpenters, all the way up to the, the project executives uh, with the owner. Um, so just a lot of opportunity to have different types of conversations. I think that's helped me in in my career as, as I learned to communicate with different types of people. But yeah, it's definitely very much a very much a skill you get a <laughs> you get a nerd like you described trying to talk to a, a batsman at a, at a concrete plant about doing a certain thing and he's just going to look at them and, and walk away and, and i've i've experienced that so it definitely definitely is a challenge <laughs> so how how much does the batchman let's let's stick with that example uh how much does the batchman influence the new products and the new software that you guys are developing do you develop the mechanism and then try to make it to where it's easy to use or do you develop it with the batchman in mind so most of our products at least with with brick eye we don't target the the ready mix plants a whole lot most of the the applications for our concrete sensors are used out in the field I'd say the majority of the users are contractors. I guess there's some some cases where we're supplying to a testing form or the ready mix supplier. Um, but to kind of kind of answer your question, I think that the end goal is probably not driven off of the you know the desires of the batchman or the laborer that may be installing the the sensors. But but it has to be designed in a way that it's easy for them to use. So we, we um, the design is done based on ASTM standards and, and what the owner and engineer, the specifications require. And, and we love the idea of adding more bells and whistles to make everything you know, more intelligent. But at the end of the day, we also have to realize who's using it. So it's kind of a fine line of, of making the product user-friendly, um, but at the same time, providing all of the features that would make it smart. You, you've got, you kind of alluded to, you know, making it usable. Is it becoming more usable over time just naturally by you guys striving to do so? I, I guess my example would be back in the 90s, you had to know MS-DOS in order to get a computer to work. And now you just turn a thing on and it's a touchscreen now essentially right. <laughs> like now now you have three-year-olds that can work a macbook just as well as my my mom can it's a generational <laughs> thing <laughs> but, but you know is is it you know is is the technology in the construction industry progressing in the same way that it that it did in for consumer objects such as pcs 
I, I think it is for, you know, when I, when I started in the industry, just as an example, the, the crews were, were filling out their timesheets with, with paper and then handing it over to the foreman. And, and that quickly evolved to being done on Microsoft Excel. And then the next step was an app on their phone. And I think most cases, even the laborers, batchmen, um, a lot of the, the workers on the site are very capable um, of using technology. And I think it's evolved and it's, it's headed that way. And I think many of them have, have embraced it. So that, that's kind of, we keep those things in mind as we design our software and our equipment. Like for example, our, our concrete sensors are very much dependent on using the app. So it's, it's very user-friendly. Um, the, the app looks and feels and is similar to other apps that they may use for, let's say, an Uber or ordering food or whatever the case may be. Um, it, makes, it makes the user experience very easy. Well, with that being said, I mean, I'm going to ask you to theorize again. I don't know if you like doing this or not. <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell yet. But uh, you know, what, what can we look for in the future in this rapidly evolving industry where, I mean, in less than a decade, you've gone from a piece of paper to an app. What's, what's on the horizon? Give us, give us something. What's going to wow us in five years? Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good question. So our concrete sensors are generally used for, for one of two applications. One of them is for the use of maturity. So the user can see in real time what the, the strength or the estimated strength of that concrete is. Um, so, you know, in the past without maturity, you don't know what the strength of that concrete is until you break a cylinder. So now with maturity, you have that ability. But, you know, looking forward with enough data, the right algorithm and the right variables, you should be able to start to predict what the concrete strength will be. And it should be able to tell you when it's going to gonna meet that required strength. So kind of, a, kind of a silly example, but, you know, think about putting, putting a stake on the grill. So in the kind of the conventional old days, you would just look at it. You might take a knife, slice it open. You might take a bite of it to make sure that it's, you know, that it's cooked. So now, now we have temperature sensors that you can put in your, in your steak and it tells you, yep, it reached a certain temperature. It's ready to go. So that, that I kind of equate to maturity, but now even taking it one step further, there's, you know, smart sensors and smart grills where you throw your steak on the grill and based on the temperature of the grill and how you want it cooked and the size of that steak, it can pretty much tell you, hey, your steak's going to be ready in 18 minutes. So you can walk away, do something else, come back, and it, it is done. So I, I kind of see the same type of advancement uh, with maturity uh, for the future. So you're using kind of predictive analytics uh, to help the user be, be smarter. Um, so that that's that's one example. I think another uh, aspect of it is is what I mentioned earlier, just kind of removing the human element out of it. So um, I can give you a personal example from working on these, some of these bridge projects. We had a project where we had to pour a bunch of decks in the winter time. So we had being in, in Wisconsin in cold weather, we had to monitor the temperatures of that deck to make sure it didn't freeze. 
Um, so that was accomplished by using a little high-low thermometer that was purchased at the hardware store, and it required a foreman to, to drive in, check the temperature, check to see if it was within the threshold that it was supposed to be, and if it was starting to get too cold, he'd have to turn on uh, these, these ground heater hoses that we use that we lay across the deck with blankets um, to heat that deck up. So, so if you think about that process, right, he's got to drive in, he's got to check the thermometer, he's got to decide if that ground heater needs to be turned on or not. Then he's got to come back, check it again, maybe turn it off, where ideally you have a thermometer in that concrete that can tell you in real time wherever he's located what the temperature is, so we have that currently. But then the next step is having that thermometer, that sensor talk to that ground heater so it can turn on automatically and the foreman doesn't need to be driving back and forth. So that comes back to, to again, removing the human element with, with there is limited labor, labor taking advantage of technology. Um, so none of these concepts are, are necessarily overly complex. It's just connecting, connecting the dots with the information. Right, and then being able to record all that information too, right? I mean, that all of that yep. data, I'm sure, is invaluable. Um, what kind of what kind of initiative or what kind of directive, either from your company or your customers, do you have as far as capturing this the emissions and CO two side of things? Whether it be, you know, if you can if you can somehow record the amount of distance that foreman isn't driving compared to when he was or the amount of emissions that the, the, you know, that the concrete is, is emitting. I mean, what, what part, what part do you guys play in the recording and mitigation of overall CO2 emissions in the concrete industry, which is probably, I would say the, the biggest topic of conversation now overall. Yeah, I agree that, 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 that is the topic that is, that is being discussed. Um, you know, I think most of the initiative revolves around ways of optimizing mix designs so you can reduce the amount of cement in the mix. I think a lot of companies are, are doing this. Um, the, the idea being that with, with maturity, you can achieve your strengths at earlier days than you would otherwise using cylinders. So in many cases, if you're not using maturity, the contractor says, hey, I want to meet my strengths in two days. So... I want a mix that can hit 3,000 psi in two days. So, in many cases, that mix is over-designed. So th that is definitely one element that that we're pursuing is just awareness of the use of maturity and its ability to help reduce uh, those those CO2 emissions. But yeah, you nailed it on the head. There's a lot of other areas as well, like with with the heating example. So. Um, some of our our construction risk sensors um, are used in mainly vertical construction applications where they may be using propane heaters to either preheat the forming zone or post-heat that concrete once it's been placed. And in many cases, they just leave it turned on and they just don't shut it off. But yeah, being able to use intelligence on, okay, this deck is is warm enough. We're not in any danger of getting too cold. Let's turn that heater off. Um, so that's definitely something we're looking at is how to capture and quantify 
some of the missions um, that that are are saved with um, by automating equipment to turn on and off when it's needed and not just leaving it on all the time. You talk about all the all the things that you guys can do as, as far as you know quantifying and, and mitigating CO two emissions and and recording it and you know the entire industry is is really honed in on those issues, but the entire industry is also inundated with a lot of other technology companies out there that either do or claim to do a lot of the same things that that brick eye and lumicon you know is is claiming to do and um, personal story if you've been to the world of concrete the last time or the last two times even now they have an entire hall devoted to uh the technology side of concrete whereas it used to be the smallest segment and uh, you know it used to be equipment was the biggest room and then technology was the smallest little corner and and now it's almost you know, the, the technology building is almost just as big as, as the equipment building. So with all that being said, it seems to be that the technology aspect of the concrete industry right now is, is really the Wild West. You have a lot of startups and then you have you have a lot of new players entering the market at all times. So uh, with that long winded lead in to my direct question here is, you know, what what sets you guys apart? What What can you say you guys do that? that would entice people to to go with your software and, and your hardware over competitors? Yeah, absolutely. You, you bring up a very valid point. I, I, when I was at World of Concrete a few months ago, I think I counted eight companies, eight concrete sensor companies within about a 500 foot radius of, of our booth. So it's like, good grief, there, there's, there are a lot of them out there. Um, but so every system is a little bit different with with how it's set up. I mean, some use Bluetooth, some use long-range radio frequencies, others use cell phone coverage. Some are these embeddable sensors, some are reusable. So there's kind of a variety of different types of architectures um, that that all with this, essentially the same goal. Um, so the way that our system is, is set up is that it includes or it consists of a sacrificial cable that connects to a reusable node. And what is unique about our system is that we're the only ones out there that use a relatively small and really affordable node that transmits that data directly to the cloud. So you plug the cable into the node and you can get updates directly to your phone. Where most other systems out there would require some type of centralized hub or gateway that receive the data from the sensors and then transfer it up to the cloud. So in that way, our, our system is very much, much plug and play and caters very well to, for ease of use. Um, another thing that, that sets us apart is we're the only ones that have a cable in which you can add multiple sensors on it. So if you think about a concrete element that needs to be monitored, in many cases, let's say it would require three sensors, one in the center, one on the outside, and one on the top. So for most cases, that would require them putting in three individual cables to to monitor those, those locations. Um, the, the advantage of our system with being able to put multiple sensors on the same cable, you can get away with one cable, that uh, just reduces the amount of installation and and management of those of those wires. So that's that's another um, aspect that uh, where we can differentiate ourselves compared to some of our competitors. Being able to use 
less equipment, right? Because there's a lot of throwaway from what I've seen and very unprofessional viewpoint of things, but just being on job sites, there's, there's a lot of sacrificial equipment that, that goes into these, you know, the monitoring, monitoring process. So if you're able to just be more efficient with that, I mean, that helps all parties involved. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It does help reduce the price point on it. Uh, you don't need as many nodes to, to accomplish the same, the same goal. Mm-hmm. Well, Eric, we, we really appreciate your time and, and all the information you've been able to give to the show. Well, I mean, you know, we're, we're huge tech nerds on the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Anytime we get to talk tech and, and what can be around the corner and how the industry is becoming more and more efficient, you know, we, we really enjoy doing so. But we also enjoy talking about what can and, and has gone wrong. And usually it's not in a modern day setting. Usually it's in people using archaic technologies on a job site and being relatively unsafe. So as a, as a man that, that prides himself on technology and making the job site safer and more efficient, I want to hear your best, craziest thing you've ever seen on a job site story. Uh, you have some pretty stiff competition. Um, so far, we've had we've had guests that have been on a on a job site. It was an expansion project and uh, for a hospital, and a one particular mental ward patient got loose and was running around the job site naked. Um, we've had <laughs> we've had a few. We've actually had a few stories that have that have involved nudity. That's not a prerequisite, by the way, but it's, it seems to be where everyone kind of gravitates towards. <laughs> but with all that being said, give us a good story, man. Yeah, so I, I have a have a couple, and I'll, I'll get through the first one. I guess you you can tell me if I I have time or not to dive into the second. But um, so so the the first one involved we were doing a a bridge replacement over a river, and this is in southeast Wisconsin. And all of a sudden, a, a little single prop plane uh, had a crash landing in the river uh, just a couple hundred yards um, upstream of, of where the job site was. So the the plane somehow managed to kind of float down the river and, and kind of park itself next to our job site. So we rushed over and, you know, check on the pilot. Thankfully, he, he, was, he was totally okay. Um, but he was kind of like distressed about how he was going to get his plane out of the river. And so, you know, he looked at us and saw that we had a 150-ton crane sitting right next to the bridge, and he's like, "Hey, can 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 I use your crane to pull pull my plane out?" <laughs> I'm kind of look at him. I'm like, "Well, it's not a bad idea, honestly." So, I called up our safety department, and they had me write out a quick uh, kind of letter that indemnified us in the event that anything went wrong, but. Sure enough, he rigged up his plane and we hooked onto it and pulled this little plane out of out of the river with this 150-ton crane. So it, it was it's pretty funny. I don't I don't think he I don't think we even charged him anything for it, but he he gave us like 50, 100 bucks or something. So that was that was the guy's beer money for the night. So yeah, it's it pretty funny. <laughs> You talk about being lucky and unlucky all at the same time. First, you got to crash land your plane, so you're you're at a loss there. But then all of a sudden, you find yourself next to a crane. Like, hey, you guys want to do me a solid and pull me out of here? Yeah, it worked worked out for him. Yeah, thankfully, he did not get hurt. And 
there was a crane right next to this plane. So <laughs> awesome, awesome. That's that's a good one. I'll give you credit. That's at least top five for us. And it did not involve it didn't it did not involve nudity or substance abuse, and 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 it's still in the top five. So that is wholesome entertainment. There, we appreciate it. What else you got? You got another one for me? Yeah. So the the next one honestly doesn't even have a whole lot to do with with construction. It's it's just kind of a funny one of my most memorable experiences of, of working in the construction industry and is it is it joey that's he's a hunter right so he i think he would have he would have appreciated this story um yeah, yeah. But, he'll, he'll listen to this he he's a professional okay. hunter and he's a part-time concrete guy it was what we, <laughs> we joke with him about nice yeah so it was it was about 10 years ago we got a new a new dog a new puppy that I was planning on using for, for hunting. And his, it's an upland bird hunting dog. It's a Hungarian Vishla. And so I was pretty intent on, on training this thing. So I, I had a lot more time back then. I did not, did not have any kids at the time. Um, so the way that I wanted to train it was you, you use live birds. And we had some training grounds close to our house. And you, you usually buy these, these quail or pheasants and you place them out in this field. You let the dog run around. He smells them. He goes on point. You kind of go over. You kick the bush. The bird flies out. You, you shoot a couple blanks, you know, just to get the dog used to the, the sound of the gun and, and being around the birds. Um, but, but I was also pretty cheap, so I didn't want to pay for, for purchasing all these, these quail and pheasants from, from the pheasant farm. Um, so at the same time, we were doing a project in downtown Milwaukee that consisted of of installing concrete overlays on on dozens of bridges, and all this work had to be done at night just because of the lane closures. So while I was down in downtown Milwaukee at night, I noticed that there's like hundreds, thousands of pigeons underneath these these bridges. So I'm like, well, I wonder if I could use them. So, um, so it turned out that I started, uh, trapping a number of these, of these pigeons. And, and I do that by, I joined the crew for the safety huddle, got them going and then make, assuming everything was, was going right with the poor, I was able to drag our foreman down underneath the bridge. And, you know, we spend a couple hours just, uh, catching pigeons using, uh, you know, a big fishing net. And and we looked totally <laughs> legit because we had we had PPE on, we had you know the trucks with the strobe lights, so we looked like we were you know there for a purpose. But I put the put the birds in in a cage in the trunk of my car, um, went home, and then um, and I'd use all these pigeons at, at, for for training my dog. Um, so and you know just in case any of your your listeners are, are concerned, there's there's no pigeons that were harmed and you know in this process. Um, in fact, I felt like I was doing them a, a service by removing them from the city and kind of transferring them out to this this beautiful nature preserve. So that I don't uh, think we have that kind of audience, Eric. You can speak <laughs> freely here. <laughs> so yeah, that was definitely one of the the highlights of of my my career with uh with the bridge construction company so that that's a work perk story that's what we need to do we need to transition we need to either start a new segment or transition this one into well from what's the craziest thing to what's the biggest work perk you've ever had to enjoy while being on a job site i'm sure you get some good some good stories yeah i i don't think i told my bosses about it until maybe a few years later i didn't feel comfortable enough 
um, sharing that I was using company resources for uh, for trapping pigeons for my own my own personal use. <laughs> Sorry, you got your work done first. You you right. you uh, yeah. You prefaced the story with you know after the safety brief and everything was going good. <laughs> then I went and got my birds. Yeah, so good good times. <laughs> Well, good stuff, man. Well, we, we really appreciate your time, all your in, insight and knowledge. Uh, it was a fantastic episode, and we really appreciate you being on. And if uh, we can have you on again in the future, after uh, after robots take over the world, you can come on the podcast and, and tell us about it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. So appreciate it. Yep, likewise, man. All right, man. Take care. Yep. Bye.